So faith requires us to, to reject. Faith in God requires us to reject faith in self. You and I cannot have faith in self and faith in God together. James would put it this way, and we're studying James in the youth group. We're also studying James in our men's, prayer, uh, our men's breakfast fellowship time. James would put it this way. Um, he would use these illustrations very clearly. You uh, cannot be a double-souled or a two-souled man. You will be unstable in all your ways. You either have faith in God or faith in self. You can't have both. Now, I understand that there is an aspect of trusting what God is doing in me and the gifts and times and talent and treasure that God has given me, and I'm supposed to have confidence in those realities. I'm not saying that you become a self-deprecating, you know, lack of confident type of person. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that our genuine faith must be placed in God. Our genuine trust must be directed by God's sovereign plan, not by my plans, my manipulated circumstances. And Abraham's story fits in. So today's narrative actually is going to showcase for us our annual theme in a very special way. And it's a way that's kind of least expected, is it not? We must be reminded that though God's righteousness externally applied to us, like Abraham, solidifies our eternal relationship with God and our eternal destiny in heaven, we still have a responsibility to reject our natural, sinful, self-deceived schemes of life and respond in genuine faith in God in the midst of life's critical circumstances. Today, we will see that Abraham, our father of faith, still struggled with the besetting sin of doubt that led to manipulation and human control. When we give in to our desire to control our circumstances, we attempt to circumvent God's way to get what we want, God's reward. However, we will see today that God's promises can only be procured or received God's way. God is not just interested in our outward display of righteousness. He is interested in our genuine heart change as we conform to his image and bend to his will. As we know, living life our way is hard and devastating. It has devastating consequences. Living life God's way requires self-sacrifice in this temporal life but it pays exponentially in eternal dividends. Therefore, the kernel of truth that we have today, the thing that you'll hear me say, hopefully over and over again, is right here. Every believer must submit to God's way to enjoy God's reward. Every believer must submit to God's way to enjoy God's reward. The simplized kernel of truth today is that you and I, as true believers with genuine faith, must reveal or showcase that true belief and genuine faith in God's sovereignty, His power, and His authority. We must demonstrate that by submitting to His way and rejecting our personal machinations, our personal plans, our personal attempt to secure God's blessing, God's promise, and God's reward. So that leads me to point out the, the three points today. Today, we're going to see three big picture object lessons from Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech that demonstrate our need 
to have true faith in God by saying no to our own personal life plans when we're tempted to manipulate our circumstances to receive God's promises. So let's take a look at the first object lesson, and that's the object lesson of sin's failure. We see that in verses 1 to 16. The object lesson of sin's failure. Sin's failure. So as we look at sin's failure in the passage, we really are, are investigating Abraham, right? We have Abraham and we have Abimelech, and they're both big players in this text. Um, we have an opening up with Abraham journeying um, down to the south, so he's left his place where he was overlooking the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Perhaps the, the fire brimstone, the the uh, sulfur, ash, and dust has now filled the valley where he was pasturing his animals, and the fumes and the nauseating smell of death and burning flesh and destruction has so permeated his mind that it's permanently scarred him, and he's decided, you know what, i got to get out of this place. This is too painful of a reminder of the destruction um, that God rained down because this cities, these cities didn't even have ten righteous people in them. Remember, Abraham had prayed, Lord, would you spare for just 10? And God said, yeah, I would spare the entire plains and all the cities for just 10 righteous people. And God rescues Lot and his daughters. And the rest are wiped out. I don't, we don't really know why Abraham left. I'm, I'm, I'm reading that into the text, but I can imagine the volcanic and eruptive uh, self-implosion God-ordained judgment on Sodom, Gomorrah, and the five cities of the plains that fell into the uh, Transjordan Valley and down into the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea area as we know it today, no doubt was something of a difficulty for Abraham to see. So he leaves this place. And, he, and he, when he goes, um, he apparently does what is habitual. Hence, sin's failure. Remember what I opened up with, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Because we're surrounded by so many men and women who've gone before us and walked that faith path, that faith path that says, I'm going to believe God even when my circumstances don't showcase or I don't see a way in my circumstances to get the end result. I'm going to believe God and I'm going to walk by faith. And most of those men and women died a cruel and horrible death. Some of them were sawn asunder. They were cut in half, as the author of Hebrews says. They died a martyr's death. It wasn't a real happy way to go. Hebrews then says, because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, we too must tear away from our flesh as if we have leprous clothing on. We are to lay aside every weight, the things that are stumbling blocks in our life and sins that stand well. How are we to do that? Verse 2, looking unto Jesus. You see, Abraham set a pattern in his life when he left Ur. He said, hey, Sarah, Sarai, when he was Abram, you're beautiful. You are indeed princess. That's what her name meant. You are indeed a princess. And in fact, who coveted Sarai all the way through these journeys, this 30-plus year journey that he'd gone from Ur to the present? Pharaoh, and King Abimelech, the king of the, the Philistines. So Sarai, who by the way, how old is Sarai now? 90. 90. She's taken into this king's harem as a beautiful maiden, thinking that she's a virgin, 
to receive as his princess, one of his queens, because he's told that she is the sister of Abraham. And at 90, she's such a looker that Abimelech's like, yeah, I'll take her. I know that's really hard for us to imagine, right? I mean, uh, I'm 43 and I'm looking at myself in the mirror thinking, man, I'm looking old. Look at these wrinkles. Look at this gray hair popping out. What in the world? You know, we went, we went skating yesterday, and my quads are like, what were you thinking? <laughs> I skipped leg day last week. That's probably why. <sighs> what the point here is this. Abraham set a pattern from the very beginning, and it wasn't a good one. Abraham wanted to protect himself and his wife, but he decided to lie to do it. And apparently this habit that Abraham had from the very beginning of their departure from Ur that he sowed in his life continued to tempt him over and over and over again. Here he is. His wife is 90 years old. He is 100. And he's still afraid that God's promise that he just received in the mountaintop experience that Sarah's going to conceive and bring forth a child, that God somehow needs his help. Hey, God, um, uh, you know, Abimelech, he's a pretty strong and powerful king, and I'm entering into his territory. Why don't I help you out a bit? And I'll just tell Abimelech, you know, that Sarah is my sister like normal, because I know you can't handle this situation. I mean, you promised that, uh, that, that Sarah would bear my child, but, you know, there is a chance that she might bear Abimelech's child, um, so I, I probably should just help you out here. I mean, because ultimately your promise can't be fulfilled um, if Sarah doesn't bear me a son or if I get killed because Sarah's so beautiful they want him to be your wife and, you know, he kills me because he thinks that I'm his, her husband. You know, I can't have that happening. So, God, we're going to work it my way this time. Again. Sound familiar? Have you ever had that kind of conversation with God? I know there's a lot of facetiousness happening here. My, my statements are dripping with sarcasm and irony. I hope you understand that. But how many times have we gone to God in the midst of our life circumstances and say, hey, God, you need my help, don't you? I got an idea here that would probably make things go a little bit better for me. Um, you probably haven't thought of that, so let me work it into this scenario. The problem with this situation is that this has been Abraham's pattern. And I wonder how many patterns have we men, as heads of our home, or we ladies, given the, given the authority structure under our husbands to facilitate management of the home, how many patterns have we just decided, I'm going to insert my, my own manipulation. I'm going to have God's promises my way. I'm going to, I'm going to invite God to do things the way I would like. How many times have we set those unhealthy patterns and now we're reaping the unhealthy rewards of not trusting in God's sovereign plan? Sin's failure is clear in this text. By the way, it shouldn't say Genesis 13, 14, 19, 1. That's my bad. It should say Genesis uh, 19 or verse 20, verses 1 to 16 here. So that is a typo. Please forgive me. Uh, sin's failure is found in Genesis 20, verses 1 to 16. So Abraham's intercession for Lot was epic, was it not? God's promise to Abraham and Sarah was undeniable, yet they would be tempted to fail in the very area in which God spent 
time buttressing their faith in the area of Sarah's conception. Friends, we are often tempted in the area where we feel the strongest only to be reminded that our strength is actually weakness. And our weakness can become a source of God's strength in our life. That's what Paul prayed in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 10, when he was reminded he was given a thorn in the flesh and he prayed earnestly three times that God would take it away. And finally God said, hey, Paul, knock, 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 knock. Hello, anybody home? Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul gets it, and he's like, okay, I'm going to glory in my infirmity. Hey, everybody, I'm the weakest street preacher on planet Earth, and so I'm just going to come to you in, with gospel boldness and the timidity uh, and all of my fail failings and all of my frailty, and I'm going to trust that God's power is greater than my physical limitations. That's what God wanted Abraham to do. That's what God wants you to do. Life will not work out the way we want it just because we want it. Life will always work out the way God wants it, and we can either be willing participants or we can suffer the consequences of bad decision-making. And so, friends, what area in your life would you consider your strength? Oh, I got this. I'm good at this. Yeah, uh, I don't need God here. He and I have an agreement. You know, this is my neck of the woods. This is my cup of tea. This is where I shine. Eh, wrong answer. No, this is where you're going to fall. This is where the enemy is going to tempt you. This is where by the mercy and grace of God, God is going to reach down and touch you and say, you need to change in your heart. You have a heart problem that needs to be changed. Abraham at 100 years old was not beyond God speaking to him and saying, you need to change. Abraham listened. Will you listen? There's two major themes of Genesis that collide in our 2023 annual theme, right? Sin destroys, but God delivers. We've seen this contrast work its effect over and over again in the Genesis narrative from the fatal fall of Adam and Eve to the insidious murder of Abel. God stated that the uncompromising consequence of sin is death. That is separation from God spiritually and ultimately separation from the body physically. And so, God told Cain in Genesis 4, leave that there. God told Cain in Genesis 4, 7 that sin, like a vicious carnivore, sits crouching at the door of our heart waiting to pounce and deliver us from within. That's Genesis 4, 7. Cain was the first human born with a sin nature. Did you get that? He was the first human born with a sin nature. And the first to test this intrinsic sin principle, and Cain epically failed. As we stated in our sermon through the section of Genesis, Cain's way and God's way are diametrically opposed. Cain's way and God's way are diametrically opposed. Whether we rely on ourselves or our ingenuity or our will to exceed or our way in life, we are demonstrating the truth that we are sinners by birth and choice, and our sin, our way, will lead to eternal death. That was true of Cain. That is true of us today. 
Sin comes from within our heart. It is birthed in our minds, and it is lived out in the subtlety of our actions towards God and others. Sin always has devastating consequences. It always takes us further than we want to go, and it leaves us longer than we want to stay. Abraham's life pattern was, I'm setting up my family this way, and I'm going to do this over and over again, regardless of what God thinks, because God needs my help. That pattern is what taught Sarah to come to her husband in Genesis 16 and say, hey, God has closed my womb. Same words that are quoted in chapter 20 here about God closing the womb of Abimelech and the Philistines and everybody in his household. Well, not Abimelech, he didn't have a womb, but you know what I mean. Same thing used. So she goes to her husband and says, why don't you take Hagar? How well did that work out for them? Devastating, wasn't it? How well did that work out for Hagar? Devastating, wasn't it? Friends, when we try to manipulate God's promises by doing it our way, how well does that work out for us and the others around us? can have devastating consequences. This clearly delineated path of sin's desires conceived in the heart that gives birth to sin and leads in the end to death, as James 1.15 says, is highlighted in our narrative as applicable not only to lost, unsaved followers of self who reject God, but this pathology is alive and well even in believers like Cain. It's crouching at our heart's door and ready to devour us as well. Lot felt the sting of desires birthed out in sin that led to complete familial destruction. Friends, when we give in to desires, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, births death. And James 1.16 tells us, do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. This is always the process. This is always the pathology. But God intervenes. Here we see in the text, sin fails. Sin's failure is evident even in the life of this giant of faith, Abraham. That's the first object lesson. Sin always destroys. Listen, men and women, just because you and I are saved, just because we are secure, just because we are saints, does not mean we are immune from the sin that is in our hearts. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Let me tell you something, friends. I tremble in the pulpit saying those words. Because I'm a man who has a sin nature. And I don't want to sow atrocious consequences in my family's life either. So I want you to know this sermon is not made with anybody else in mind except for me and God. That God in his mercy and grace would would allow me to be a man that will sow in the spirit to God so that I will reap in the spirit everlasting life. So don't for a moment think that, that I am preaching a message that I haven't chewed on. And let me tell you, I didn't want to preach this message today. I don't want to be publicly held accountable for the truth that I needed to hear too. But I'm here because God's called me to do this. Because I believe I need to hear it and you need to hear it. Sin has terrible 
consequences. Sin always brings failure, and that failure can be really devastating. But there's a second object lesson, and it's a beautiful one. And I hope you don't miss it. The second object lesson is God's forgiveness and grace. Notice in chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, God grants forgiveness and grace. Now, he uses kind of an unlikely source here, doesn't he? I mean, who is this Abimelech anyway? We've never even heard of him till now. He's the king of, a, of an unrighteous, loathsome people that God is going to expel out of the land because they're idol worshipers. In fact, we end up learning a whole lot about uh, the pagan idolatrous group called the Philistines. They become a bane in the Israelites' existence by the time Solomon or, or King David shows up. They even, they even win a, a battle over the Israelites, and they even take... They take the uh, Ark of the Covenant um, and they try to house it in their own temple, the god Dagon, the fish god Dagon. And irony of all ironies, God like, you know, ends up destroying the actual idol. Like the idol falls down and they, they pick it up and they're like, oh, how'd that happen? Oh, well, we'll just pick it back up. They pick it back up, then it falls down again and this time his hands and head are broken off. Like, this is a stupid piece of stone. Hello, people. And then eventually God sends them uh, a horrible plague to their people and they finally just put this thing on an ox cart and they just let the oxen go and hope that it goes back to Israel. These idolaters, but ironically, just like in that story with David in the future of God's people, these idol worshipers at least identified that there was a one true God and that there were consequences for disobeying that one true God and, and they at least tried to do right. Here, Abimelech, an idol worshiper confronts Abraham, the towering man of faith, the follower of Yahweh, who is a worshiper of God, who's supposed to draw all peoples to himself and all the nations of the earth are supposed to be blessed. And Abimelech is like, dude, what is wrong with you? God just showed up in my dream and said I was a dead man. And it's your fault. <laughs> Abimelech isn't messing around. Abimelech has more sense than Abraham does. Sometimes the unsaved people in your life have more good sense about what it means to be a Christian than you do. Because they're looking at your life and you're like, hey, I got liberty. I can do whatever. You know, I'm forgiven. I'm bought. I got eternity. You know, God wants me to be happy because, you know, blessed is the man. And so happiness is my goal. So I'm going to do my thing here on earth and it's all good because God loves me. He's forgiven me. You know, I got eternity. And your unsaved co-workers are like, what? Okay, well, I don't want your religion because that's exactly the way I'm living now. <laughs> Abraham is confronted by Abimelech from the most unlikely source. Do you know that's God's grace in Abraham's life? And not only does Abraham get confronted by Abimelech, but Abraham responds properly and Abraham repents and finds forgiveness. Now we see that in the text. Essentially, there's a couple of clues here. We find uh, Abraham staggeringly arguing with Abimelech in verse 11. It's pretty pathetic. This is kind of like when the kid 
Um, when your kid gets caught, I like the proverbial cookie jar. We never had them, so I can use that as an illustration. No, I'm safe with my kids. They don't get mad at me for this because they never did this. But, you know, the proverbial kid in the cookie jar, they come up to you and they got chocolate all over their pudgy hands and smeared on their face. And, you know, you just made cookies and you put them in the jar. And they're like, no, I didn't go. I didn't do that. I didn't eat anything out of the cookie jar. And you look at the cookie jar and there's like a bunch of mangled pieces of cookies left and smeared on the countertop and crumbs all over the floor. And, you know, they've got, they've got napkins everywhere and you know like I said chocolate smell oh I, I didn't I didn't do that that wasn't me and their sister or brother or sibling comes up like that was totally you hey mom look what they did <laughs> they're gonna get it right and they realize um wow I've been caught and mom and dad are like you know what I'm gonna give you grace I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you uh, uh, favor when you deserve disfavor. That's exactly what happens. By the way, notice um, what he does. He starts to argue. I thought, surely fear of God isn't in this place. They'll kill me on account of my wife. And then, oh, by the way, she really is my sister, which just makes it creepier, just makes it weirder. Just close your mouth, Abraham. It's just weird, right? Doesn't it just make it weirder? Well, she's actually is my sister. Just that was weird. Just don't go there like that. Why? Why did you bring that up? It's just, you were wrong. Say, I'm sorry. God appeared to the guy and said, you're going to die, and it's my fault. Admit it. And here's a clue of God's fervent grace here in this process. Um, what we find a few verses up, Abimelech, you know, before he confronts um, Abraham, look um, with me at verse 7. He says, God saying to Abimelech in the dream, now therefore restore the man's wife, for he is a what? Prophet. Did you know this is the very first mention of prophet in the, in the entire Bible? Abraham is called a prophet. First time it's mentioned. What do we know Abraham as? Well, he's called a prophet here, but what, what have we seen him do so far? Believe God, and it was accredited to him to righteousness, follow in obedience to God, set up altars of worship to God, direct his family to worship, love, and serve God. And now we've seen, based on chapter 18, Abraham interceded for others on God's behalf. What is God saying to Abimelech? Abraham will intercede on your behalf. So this is the kernel, this is a side note for those theologians who like to geek out on Bible first like me. The first time something is mentioned, it gives you something in the context that tells you what it is. Here this prophet Abraham is an intercessor who loves God, has been credited to righteousness by God, and he lives in such a way as to draw people to God. Okay? The life of the prophet pointing to God. Now, that was a side but here we find God has already graced Abraham with a description that Abimelech understands, and we find Abraham doing what's right. Because the result in verses 14 and following is that Abimelech takes sheep, he takes a, a peace offering, he gives them to Abraham, he says, look, you can dwell anywhere you want, my land, nobody's going to touch you. And by the way, he ends up giving Sarah, I think it's interesting, it says, thus she was rebuked. He gives Sarah pieces of silver because the text tells us that Sarah participated in this deception as well. It originally starts in verse uh, uh, 2. Now Abraham said, Sarah is my wife. 
said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. But later on, Abimelech says to God, she herself said she was my sister as well. So both Abraham and Sarah are both complicit in this. Both Abraham and Sarah get rebuked. But who gets, according to the story, the greater condemnation? Abraham. Abraham is the head of his house. And I'm saying this just because I'm pointing a bunch of fingers. Okay, if I'm doing this, I'm pointing a bunch of fingers back at me as the head of my house, right? But heads of your households. When you make your wife complicit with your bad leadership and your bad sin, you're causing her to sin as well. And, so, and you might need to repent to your wife because of that as well. Sarah is rebuked. Now, um, the, the bride price, the bridal price here in, in historic history for uh, Abimelech for, the, for this time period was a maximum. You did not pay a bridal price of more than 50 shekels of silver. So he gave the bridal price of 20 brides. That was him saying, I'm going to shower you with abundant grace so that no, everybody knows I am innocent and we have reconciled. I'm going to give you the bridal price of 20 princesses. And 1,000 shekels, I didn't do the math, but you can probably Google it in, in a millisecond. and It'll tell you today's equivalent to 1,000 shekels of silver. It's a lot of money. And so God grants grace. When they deserve disfavor, God gives them favor in this story. Why? Because they're God's children. Hebrews chapter 13 says, No chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but it's grievous. But afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness so that you might grow by it. You see, friends, God only chastens the one he loves. If you have never been chastened by God, perhaps you're not a child of God. But the chastening of God comes because God loves you, and it is meant to bring into your life peace and eternal fruit that produce righteousness so that you will grow. Friends, if God is chastening you in your life today, would you repent? Would you recognize God's grace and goodness? Would you allow the restorative peace of God to come into your life? Would you repent to those people you need to ask forgiveness of in your household? Maybe you're a husband or a grandfather or, or a dad ahead of your home, and you need to confess some things to your wife. You need to ask forgiveness for some leadership decisions that you made that are causing her to suffer or some patterns that you set in your life that have caused her to follow you and their sinful patterns, and you need to change them. Do it. Maybe you're a woman and you've been granted incredible uh, authority in the household, as you should, because your husband knows that you're a, an equal with you. You are a joint heir together of the grace of life. And you, as equal partners, have discerned each other's gifting. And you have decided to divvy up responsibilities for household management. And you, as a woman in your home, have been given incredible trust by your husband, but you've been making bad decisions. You've been sinning in that trust area. You've been manipulating things to go your way instead of God's way. You need to repent. And tell your husband. God's calling us to do things God's way. Right? God expects every one of us, uh, every believer must submit to his way to enjoy his reward. God doesn't need your interaction or your intervention. 
God's got it. Men, ladies, maybe you're you're a single adult in various stages of life and you have just lived your pattern of life so long that you've just forgotten to ask God, God, is this what you want me to do? Is this how you want me to serve? Is this who I'm supposed to be? I've gotten into this pattern of seeking self and seeking my own pleasure for so long that I've forgotten. I've forgotten to follow you. Today's story not only reveals sin's reality, even in the life of the believer, it's deeply rooted in our heart, but it also reveals God's amazing grace, which is abundant to all who heed his voice. This is especially evident when we read Genesis 20 in light of God's gracious truths presented in Genesis 19. So look at verse 29 of Genesis 19. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. God sent Abraham someone to deliver Lot. Look at verse 37. The firstborn of Lot bore a son and called him his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. I know that's an atrocious situation. These are true tragedies. The, the, the plains, these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and five cities destroyed because of their sin against God. Lot being rescued. His daughters being so fixated with, uh, with, um, with the way of the world. Sodom had so thoroughly corrupted Lot's leadership over his household that his virgin daughters applied Sodom's ideology to justify their hideous scheme to commit incest, to leave their father a posterity. But grace is evident in his willingness to give righteous Lot a gift with a messianic legacy. Turn with me to Ruth real quick. Remember, the most important thing we can do today is look at God's word and not listen to my words. Look at Ruth chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of the judges, so this is some, you know, I don't know, uh, this is about eight, almost 900 years later from where we are. 900 years later, it came to pass in the time of the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land of Israel. A certain man named of, of Bethlehem of Judah went to dwell in the country of Moab. By the way, what do we know of the city of Bethlehem? It's called the city of Dawid, David. It's not the city of David quite yet. It's of the tribe of Judah. We know Judah is the one who will have the ruling scepter. Really important tribe, okay? He's of the Bethlehem of Judah. He wants to dwell. Where did he dwell? In the country of? Moab. Who are the Moabites? Children of the incestuous relationship between Lot's firstborn and Lot. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was uh, Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two uh, sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. By the way, they were commanded not to leave Israel, but to trust in God during times of famine. They directly disobeyed God. God led, Elimelech led his family in disobedience to Moab. And we find that, Mo, that Elimelech dies, and we find that his two sons die. Malon and Chilion die as well. So his disobedience led to his death and his son's death. But there is a silver lining. Now they took wives of Moab women. One of them was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about 10 years. And both Malon and Chilion died. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. Um, so 
Naomi arises with her daughters-in-law. She might return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law and her, and they went the way to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord will deal kindly with you and as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she's saying, go get remarried. Go home and get remarried. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they said to her, surely we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? There's still, there, are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should say, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, quote, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Tremendous faith from a daughter of Moab. Tremendous testimony to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, that this woman of a cursed lineage would be willing to cling to her mother-in-law in faith and be a widow for the rest of her life. And that would be a tragedy if the story ended there. Turn a couple pages over to chapter 4 and look at verse 11. You know the rest of the story probably. They, uh, she begins to do what only widows can do. She begins to work in the field as a pauper, reaping the corners of the fields, and uh, she ends up reaping in a field that is a close kinsman related to Naomi. Uh, in Israel's history, called a kinsman redeemer, someone who could actually marry Ruth and raise up a, sh a child that would be a grandson to Naomi, but a lineage or a heritage for Naomi's family so that the family lineage would not die. She does not know this, but she discovers a field by a man named Boaz, who is a close kinsman redeemer, and she begins to reap in the field. No, I'm not going to the final point yet. She begins to reap in the field uh, of, of this kinsman redeemer, and this man pays close attention to her and realizes this woman can work. What a blessing. Isn't she this Moabite? She's outworking all the Israelites, and she's doing this for her mother-in-law. So he tells his servants, hey, why don't you leave some of the good grain? So she's not working so hard, so she gets a little bit more fruit of her labor. And this relationship starts to develop, and, and she goes home, and she's like, oh, Mom, uh, the master of this field has been showing us blessing here, and I, I'm not sure what I should do. And, and her mom, her mother-in-law says, well, this is, this is what you should do. And, and she tells her of this ritual of, of, of how she is to follow, how she is to present herself, and, and essentially, without words, say, I'm willing to become your wife. I'm willing to, to be, be a part of your family and your household if you would like. And in this beautiful story, he actually, he actually says, hey, I'm old, and there's another kinsman redeemer that's actually closer in relationship 
than I am to you, so I need to ask him first. But if he says no, I absolutely will take you as my wife, and you are blessed of God, and I'm blessed by God. And here was a man who didn't have a wife, never thought he was going to be married. He gets to have the gift of this loyal Moabitess named Ruth. And look what happens in chapter 4. And all the people who are at the gate, this is at the time of the ceremony where they actually do the kinsman redeemer deed, and he takes off his sandal and he does the vow and he accepts her and they essentially get married. All the people who are at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. We're going to get to that later on in Genesis. Because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now the gene, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David, David begot Jesus. Doesn't say that in the text, but that's what Matthew tells us. Listen, I know, guys, I read this text. I know some of you, um, you know, this was a, a bit of a, seems like a side. It is not a side or a distraction. This is the point. God graces us and forgives us. And when you come to God and you confess your sin and you forsake it and you say, I'm not going to follow my way, I'm going to follow God's way, you have no idea what God can do in your life. God can make the sloppy, crazy mess that you've made in your life become the most beautiful, glorious tapestry of God's grace, mercy, and abundance that you could ever imagine. You may never see it in your life. Oh, friends, don't harden your hearts, but open them to God's love and grace. Receive his mercy and promise. Don't quit. Don't go grow weary in well-doing, because you will reap in due season if you do not faint. Don't give up uh, in those hard uh, lessons of life. Here's the final object lesson. I have literally an itty-bitty paragraph. Well, it's not that itty-bitty, but here we go. Faith's reward. Here it is. Abraham repented from his sin of manipulating his circumstances and turned by faith to trust in God's sovereign plan for his life. His reward was a genuine heir from Sarah's womb. His reward is our reward today because that heir led to Jesus. Friends, every believer must submit to God's way to enjoy God's reward. Here's my conclusion. A couple of questions. Are you discouraged by the besetting sin in your life? that you continue to follow, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Like Abraham, do you believe God needs your help to enact his perfect plan for your life? Christian, don't be deceived. God is bigger than your plans, and God's rewards are greater than you can imagine. 
every believer must submit to God's way to enjoy God's reward. Let's pray.